a Podcast One production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home, where we explore the stories behind the food that we all love. This man is arguably the most successful restaurateur in the country. He's run restaurants like the Paddington Inn, which in its time was an absolute game changer. He's had Aria for nearly 20 years, Chiswick and the Opera Bar, which if you've ever been to Sydney on a sunny day, is absolutely heaving. But what you might not know about Matt is that he didn't even have an interest in food when he was a kid. He grew up in a typical meat and two veg family. He didn't care about food, but it took a turning point in his life to awaken him to the passion and the power of food. Now he's someone who stands for not only beautiful, fresh ingredients, fine dining, the very best of food, but also knowing where your food comes from. He's an ambassador for Thank You for Farmers Foundation, which is igniting the conversation to amplify awareness of rural communities. He's an amazing man, and I consider him a friend. Here he is, Matt Moran. So, I mean, in terms of uh, background, I mean, I think we've, we've known each other for many years. And I many think years. what I've admired about you always, um, you have so many different balls in the air. Mm. Not only have you written books and you've been on television, but you are probably one of, if not the most successful restaurateur in Australia. How the hell, how the hell do you keep all that going? Um, the, the key thing is, Gary, I don't. Other people do. And having right. good people around me, and and I've been very very blessed. Um, you know, I've been in business by myself now, God, twenty, twenty nine, twenty eight years. Um, and I started with Peter Sullivan, who was my partner for you know a good sort of twenty four years. Um, and uh, you know, I remember when Peter and I first bought our first restaurant. I was twenty two, and he was twenty seven. Paddington in Bistro ninety one, and uh, I remember thinking to myself, and I mentioned it to him, God, how easy is this after the first three months? We have all this money in the bank. We actually hadn't been paying supplies because <laughs> we just didn't. I was the cook and he was the waiter and, you know, we were very good at that, but we sort of, when it came to book work, we, we weren't great. You were 22. I was 22, yeah, and he wasn't much older. And then, uh, and then we got Peter's wife to come in and I remember you know, her sorting all that mess out, which was fine. You know, everyone was happy because, you know, the suppliers were happy. We were using lots of it and, you know, um, and they probably had 30 days or 60 days anyway. They 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 didn't really care, but, you know, we had all this money in the bank. We thought we were doing really well. Um, <laughs> our things changed. I think the first year we sort of, I think we nearly went broke a couple of times, you right. know, not knowing what we're doing and food costs and all that well, sort well, of thing. Well, tell us about that, you know, because, I mean, we, we've obviously we've had chefs, uh, on the show before, mm. and everybody sees this kind of glitzy, glamorous, mm. you know, success story, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that first year, can you remember a moment where you looked at Peter and just went, oh, shit? Mate, I think after the first year, there was a point in time that Susan, um, Peter's wife, uh, said to us that we either have to put five grand in each um, or walk away from it. And I know five grand doesn't seem like a lot of money now, but it probably was back then. And uh, I think we were committed, you know, and, and we did. And then I think you learn from your mistakes mm. and I think you surround yourself with people that uh, probably know better than what you do and then you learn off them. But was it, if you can remember it, was it where were you? Like what were you doing? I mean, was it a pit of the moment? Uh, you yeah. know, where you get that pit in your stomach and yep. you just look at each other and, and go, oh. You know, the thing was we were busy 
Um, and, you know, we were doing great food, you know, and not long after that we got a chef's hat and all that sort of stuff. So the accolades were all there and and you try to work out, geez, why, why are we so busy and, uh, and why aren't we making any money? And then you sort of take everything into account, you know, <laughs> cost of goods, um, you know, wages, all that sort of stuff, and then you sort of drill down into it and you work out, well, you know what, geez, you know, I'm not really making a wage here or, or not pretty mm. much. And then you and then you turn it around. You know, you, you start bargaining when you go to the uh, the yeah. fruit and veg markets. You know, you, you talk to the guy that, you know, you want the seconds to, to make your stocks and, you know, your carrots and your onions. You don't need that pristine stuff that, you know, the guy was getting you. And then you start working out that, you know, that there's got to be a margin in it. You know, if I can't pay a supplier, well, then I'll have to sell something or get my own money to pay him because – you know, one of the one of the things that we're renowned for and have been for thirty odd years is um, looking after our producers. And and the reason being is I've always had this thing in my head: if if the if a, a producer or a, you know butcher, fruit and veg guy, whoever they are, if they've got something special, and you've looked after them, they will ring you first. And I kind of I kind of half expect that at the same time. Um, but, you know, obviously it's a competitive industry and you want to be better than the next person, so you want the best of everything. And I remember going back to the, you know, the days of the fruit and veg markets because I couldn't afford a, a fruit and veg shop, so I used to go there um, two, three times a week for years, you know. We were working seven days back in those days too. And I used to get up at, um, you know, 3.30, 4 o'clock, and I'd sort of just recover. I'd do that on the Sunday, Monday morning, and I'd just recover by the – the Wednesday night, and then I have to do it again Thursday morning, and then I'd be off again. And occasionally, I'd have to back it up on a Saturday every now and then, but not 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 that often. Um, and I remember, you know, I'd go out to the guy that had, you know, the the hundred boxes of peaches. Back in those days, they just they didn't, you know, sort of sort them out. They just put them on boxes and sold them to whoever. And I used to say to him, I said, "Mate, you know what? If you actually get me the best box of peaches and put all the good ones in that box, I'll give you, you know, five bucks more." And then they started to click, you know, oh, here comes Matt, you know, we'll get the good stuff and we'll actually charge a bit more and they made a bit more money and I got the good produce. So, you know, that that's uh, the way I've always had that relationship with my suppliers. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, it goes through waves, doesn't it, where all of a sudden it's trendy to for the chefs to go to the market. By choice, I don't think oh. it's something <laughs> you want to do. I mean, surely at work in the hours you were doing, how many hours were you working when oh, you first mate. set up? You know, um, I was in. Paddington. We were seven days, and I don't know how long I worked for seven days, but it was a long, long time. Um, so you go to the market and you're wondering how the hell you drove there, kind of thing. Yeah, look, you, it, well, you just run on adrenaline, mm. you know. And I certainly was, and and Pete was. Pete used to come a little bit later. I'd go in and buy it all, and I, I to be honest, I used to sneak in there because you weren't allowed in there before mm. a certain time, and I'd pretend that I was whatever. Or, mm. well, sometimes I actually used to start up the top of the hill and just run where the gates were in the security, and I'd just keep running, and then they'd try to go. They'd see me running, I just running straight past them and I'll be straight in there before they know it. More of their jobs were. Couldn't be bothered to chase you. 22-year-old man, fit. (laughs) No way of stopping him. And that's a true story. I used to do that quite a bit. And I'd go around and and buy it all and put it into mounds and then people would come in and, and, you know, sort of slowly pick it all up and and, uh, would have a coffee on the way to work. And I used to do the flowers back in those days at Paddington. I'd just go to the flower markets. I knew all the girls at the flower markets. Um, You know, well, after being in the fruit and veg markets, all the guys, you just couldn't wait to get into the flower market. <laughs> and I'd buy frangipanis and bloody uh, birds of paradise and I'd do the flowers at Paddo Inn. Wow. There you go. See, that's oh, see, I, a florist. Never, I never imagined it. But <laughs> at 22, that's pretty um, insightful and pretty. Uh, yeah. I, 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 don't rem- I don't think there'd be many 22 year olds that, uh, that committed and that um, ahead of the game. What was the worst time and best time back in, back in the day setting it up and 
the best time was uh, the first day. <laughs> Can you describe it? Oh, look, it was just, you know, because I'd been working for, you know, some big restaurant names and, you know, I was at La Belle for five years and Manfredi for nearly, you know, three years, two and a half years. And that was, you know, that was a three-hour restaurant back in those days. And, and um, you know, the sense of not having to be told what to do anymore, um, but it just meant that I worked a lot bloody harder. <laughs> it just, um, it was just a sense of freedom, Gary. You know, like I can do whatever I like. I can... I can sort of create what I like and I didn't have guidelines and, and um, it was just a, a sense of, you know, let, let's get stuck in and do this, Pete. Mm. You know, let's just make it work. And do you remember Do you remember a smell, a look? I, I suppose, and it sounds really monetary and I think you know me well enough, it's not just all about <laughs> the money. Um, it was the, the, I've still got it in my safe, the first week's till roll <laughs> and how much money we turned over that week. Why did you keep it? I don't know. I've I've still got it. You know, it's just just a memory. You know, the great thing about Paddington it was an existing um, bistro that Paul Marini had made famous. The boys took it over. Steve Manfredi, Barry McDonald, and it it did all right, but there's too many partners, and that's when I took it over. And um, you know, I remember. I think it was. I think we took over about fifteen grand or something like that for the first week, which gave us a wage straight away. You know, not a lot, but it gave us a wage. Yeah. Um, so that was a great thing about buying that that business is that we, we didn't have to do a lot to it and we actually earned some money straight away. Because mm. normally one of my first questions, yep. I, often if I don't know the person that well, is that where did it all start? Where food. did the interest in food start? Yep. Was it something that was a childhood thing or was it something that you just did later on? Yeah, look, it's an interesting thing because, you know, uh, um, my background was, um, you know, farming in the, in, the, in the country. You know, I was born in Tamworth. Uh, I'm fourth generation. My kids are five, and they uh, everyone thinks automatically because you have that that um, beautiful romance of that farming background, um, or you know, generally you're a, an immigrant, um, like some of our friends that you know just have that beautiful food culture. Um, so people automatically think that you know because of the farming and and the romance of food, that's why I got into food. So I had this real love and passion for food. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> the complete opposite. You know, we lost our farms and we left the farms in, in the, you know, late 70s. Um, I went to school in Blacktown, possibly the roughest suburb in Sydney. Um, I was an academic. I used to fight. I used to play sport. I hated school with a passion. Um, I started doing home economics in year nine and ten uh, with myself, my mate and 19 girls. And it was really only get a bit of a feed, you know, one day or two days a week and hang out with the chicks. I remember in my final assessment in year nine, year 10, I can't remember what it was. I was last in the class. Um, it was a banana split. And pretty, <laughs> I, I, I kid you not, Gav. It was, it was a banana with some chocolate sauce and some bought ice cream on top. And that was, that was my, you know, final assessment or whatever. It was just crap. And, uh, and, you know, I had no interest in cooking whatsoever. And, and for some reason, um, I had a little bit of butchery skills because I'd seen it on the, on the farm and stuff growing up. And, you know, I remember being a young kid and holding the, the bowl of offal. Um, and I was a good eater. You know, I'd, I'd loved, I loved eating mm. meat. Where did um, this offal come from? I mean, how old were you? Can you remember? I was four, four or five. Oh, so yeah, re yeah. really young. Really young, yeah. So, so when we're talking 70s, you're, this is where, 
when you had the farm. When we had the farm. In the family. Yeah, yeah. So this moment is in the kitchen at home holding. No, th- this was actually slaughtering the lamb as a four-year-old and holding the the um, the bowl of yeah. offal that Dad had taken out of the brain and whatever else, you yeah. know, brains, kidneys, fries, whatever, and uh, and I'd take that bowl and carry it up to Mum because Mum loves offal. And I remember the hill. It used to be this unbelievably steep hill and, uh, and Dad would always be, you know, 50 metres in front of me and I'd be running up and holding this bowl trying not to drop it to catch him. And years later I actually went back there and did a TV show, Paddock the Plate, and um, the woman that bought the property still owned it and she's an Arnott actually, one of the Arnott descendants, and she had a big stud there. And I went back and I saw where the house was and I saw where the shed was and that hill, that really steep hill that I talked about, it wasn't. It was just a gradual little <laughs> – my legs must have been so bloody short <laughs> – <laughs> it felt like a steep hill, but it wasn't at all. <laughs> um, so, look, there, there was no real love of food. And, um, you know, I had a little bit of butchery school, so I thought maybe oh, I just wanted to leave school in year 10. I didn't, I didn't care. I just hated school and I wasn't academic and I was really good at numbers and that was probably the only thing. And um, I um, tried to get a, a – I think I tried to get an apprenticeship um, as a butcher. I was working at Parramatta RSL on weekends in year 10 I was getting paid 20 bucks for my, for the whole weekend, which I thought was a lot of money. Um, and I used to run into the cool room and back and forth um, when the meat order came in. So I knew what a piece of fillet was, what a scotch was, what a carpet bag was. And um, so this is in, what, 84? And I used to talk to the guy, and this is where the interest came from. Um, I used to talk to the guy that was on the deep fryer. He'd been there for four years. All he wanted to do was get on the grill and I thought, God, one day if I could actually get a job in here and get on that deep fry, I'd be pretty bloody happy with myself. And that was, that was it. That's, that's, that yeah. I can see a way out of school. I want a, I want a job in, in Paramount yeah. RSL. And he actually offered me one but he couldn't give it to me until the following year um, in 95, uh, sorry, 85, getting all these. And I didn't want to wait that long. So I, I went out at the end of year 10 looking for a job. And so what was it about that that deep fryer or that that environment that no, you no, just nothing really nothing it wasn't no. I mean it wasn't the chef that was on the grill that seemed to be yeah they were cool guys and I thought they were really cool bit rebellious and you know they weren't that rebellious so they were just really cool guys and I thought you know what you know I don't really want to be you know digging any trenches I don't really want to be doing you know getting grease all over me I, I just I don't know I just thought oh, you know maybe maybe a cook you know. Don't know. I, I didn't really have any love for it. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. I used to cook a little bit with my nan, but that was it. My parents couldn't cook. You know, we, we had really basic food at home, you know, protein, three veg. In fact, I didn't like seafood. In actual fact, I'd actually never had it. You know, the only thing we ever had f- seafood was fish, uh, fish fingers. That was it. Um, I do like seafood. I love seafood, but I actually never really tried it. Yeah. And, um, and then I started looking for an apprenticeship when I finished school in year 10, and um, and I just I just couldn't get one. It was bloody hard back in those days. And I re- I reckon I went for twenty job, job interviews. I remember one guy at the Harbour Watch, which is the the P one now under the Harbour Bridge of the hotel. The German chef said to me, he said, you know, yeah, you did really well. If the first ten guys don't work out, I'll give you a call. And I just you know, I was gutted. You know, I was devastated. I just. Uh, you know, what I was just, ha- what was happening back then that was making it so hard? I mean, it wasn't there the weren't recession. It, Hit late 80s, didn't it? No. So was it? Yeah, it was, there's was no real recession. There was just, um, you know, I think a lot of kids wanted to be cooks. I, I don't know. There was a, the colleges were full of kids, 
you know, and, and you know, I did went to college in the end, um, and it was just really hard to get an apprenticeship. You know, apprentices were, were paid nothing. You know, I think it was ninety eight dollars for your forty hours, and then you know, if you got overtime, you got overtime if you're lucky. Yeah. Did you tell when you told your dad that's what you wanted to do? What did oh, he yeah. have to say? Oh no, he he wasn't. Look, he he was concerned because I was in a bit of trouble back in those days too. You know, I was mucking around and whatever, and. Um, I, I I got the job at LaBelle, which I don't know how. I actually bluffed my way into it because I remember going there and, you know, I didn't know it was a good restaurant. I, I had no idea. And it was an hour and a half from where I lived. I lived in Blacktown. It was on the North Shore. You know, this is a posh part of, of Sydney. And, you know, it's a little federation, you know, town that – a little a federation restaurant that did 40 people every night, um, six, six nights a week, and it was full every night. You know, it didn't matter. And um, no resets, eight kids in the kitchen, oh, eight people in the kitchen. And I remember just talking to him and I didn't want to go, but dad made me because I'd made the appointment. I thought I'd never get it, you know, why bother? And I saw all these names, you know, with crosses next to them and no ticks, all these kids' names. And uh, I thought, here's my chance. And I, I was looking at it, I was talking to him. I said, look, I don't have a lot of experience, Michael. Oh, because I didn't call him chef. I didn't know what you call him then. And... Uh, but I'll tell you what, I can work really hard because Dad, we had the farm, a little farm back in those days then. We used to go there every weekend. And he said, you know, I said to him, I said, if you give me a crack and give me a job, I promise you, you will never, ever regret it. And because I said that to him, he said to me, why don't you come in on Thursday, Friday, Saturday night and do a trial? And, uh, and I said, yep. And that's the first real crack I had of, of getting a job. And um, I think I'd gone back to school in that February 85, right? And uh, and so I must have done a couple of weeks. And I told him that I'd gone back to school. So I took the Friday off. The, do you want to hear what happened on the second night, Gary? Yeah, I do. I don't know if you've heard this story. So I worked at the RSL, right? And the sauces came out of a bucket, which was just jelly, right? Just crap. And he had this beautiful game stock on the stove um, that he'd been cooking for, you know, 10 hours or whatever it was, um, all the game bones, the pheasant, guinea fowl that, you know, that we had to come in whole and the guts in back in those days. And um, and the kitchens were divided, the back section and the front section. And he said to me, he said, oh, can you take that off and strain it for me? Not a problem. Came out and, you know, found a strainer, a big colander and put it in and strained it and got the bones and took it back out to him and said, here you go. And he said, great, you can throw that in the bin. All right, I turned around and I walked out and I think to myself, so if I throw this in the bin, I've got nothing left because I just put oh, that no. stock straight down the sink. Oh, no. <laughs> that, that is a true story. That is so a true story. Ten hours of love oh, mate. and <laughs> labour and you just strained it you down know what? the and sink. You know what? And I didn't actually understand it truly mm. until I actually started there because he said, what did you do? The thing I just put it down the sink. And he goes, why did you do that? And I said, because you asked me to strain it. And I thought this is the stuff you get. He goes, and I could just see him frustration, but he actually did say, no, we keep the liquid, it's cold stock. And apparently he told me later that he was going to throw me out the roof, you know, like throw me off the bloody balcony because he was he was so angry. But he just didn't, he realised that I had no idea. And, uh, and the, you know, the impact of that didn't happen for, for probably a year or two later when I realised what I'd actually done. Remember I threw that stock out for you? <laughs> Were you really pissed off that time? Like, fuck, was I pissed off? I could have killed you. <laughs> um, and he said on the Saturday night, he goes, do me a favour. And I said, what? He goes, go to school on Monday and and, um, and leave and start here Monday night. 
and, and that was the start of LaBelle. But LaBelle was full on, man. We were there. So how did it make you feel? I mean, actually, rocking up. So you didn't really know when you rocked up at the back door for your trial. You didn't yep. really know. Nah. It was just a job. Just a job. It was just a job. And, and, I, and I suppose that, that was the turning point. Um, is where when I went in there for those three days and Dad picked me up every night, and Dad actually came and picked me up from Blacktown every night at midnight for, oh, he's a good for two years, two years, every night, six nights a week at midnight. And for the first year, I reckon, I'd get in the car and Dad would say, oh, you know, you've been cooking fish tonight or meat or what he could smell it on me. And he'd say to me, he goes, is this what you really want to do in life? Because he's worried if I dropped out, I couldn't go back to school. And I remember even after the first week saying to him, I said, Dad, you've got no idea what mm. they do with food. I'd never seen it before. And it was that, that instant love of just going, you know what, this is what I want to do in my life. And, you know, a little bit, you know, ADHD, you know, I throw myself into anything. And I just, I thrived on it. One, the discipline, because I'd never had it really in life. Um, and two, it was just things like souffles, Gary, things like a fan strawberry, you know, those things I'd never seen before in my life, you know, piping chocolates and making chocolates, you know, because everything was done from scratch, mm. making all pastries, puff pastries and what it was just like, it was like someone had turned the lights on. And I remember when I really realised that I was a bit strange was all my mates from Blacktown I'd see on Sundays and I'd be stuffed on Sundays, you know, because I'd been working 90 hours a week and I'd be hanging out with them and they'd all be saying, oh, I don't want to go to work tomorrow. And I'd be thinking to myself, I couldn't say it to him. I'd be thinking to myself, I can't wait to get to work tomorrow. In fact, I'm going in early just so I can learn something different. And that was the difference. You know, it's like, wow, I'm a very lucky person in life. You know, I'm going to, for the rest of my life, I'm going to do something that I actually love. Mm. And, uh, yeah, that was, that, was, that was when it switched on. And mate, it's amazing. I've never heard you talk like that before. Yeah, right. It's absolutely brilliant. So incredibly, you, so you started cooking at 15. Yep. Did it turn you from naughty boy into good boy or did it just make you harder? Uh, I think it probably just made me harder, actually. <laughs> made you more determined. Look, you know, I was just determined. And, you know, look, to be really honest, back in those days, and I'm sure you, you understand this, it, it wasn't about um, – there was no fame. There was no celebrity chef. There was no cookbooks. There was no TV. There was no airlines. There was, there was nothing. In fact, the chefs were the dirty, smelly bastards that sat out the back that no one gave a stuff about until they started owning the restaurants. So there was no ambition. The ambition was just to learn as much as I possibly could. And, you know, it was a, it was a big kitchen. I realised that I was, I was doing well because I, I never got yelled at like everybody else. And I remember he, he lost it one day, Michael, and sat us all down and, and said, and pointed everyone else out except for I was the only one that he didn't. And, uh, and you know, I, I moved through the ranks really quickly within two years and I was pretty much sous chef by the time I was a, a third-year apprentice. So and you're only what nineteen? No, right mate. I, I was I was seventeen, eighteen. Seventeen, eighteen. And he just really took me under under, under his wing. And I hope he's listened to this because I owe you a lot, Michael Dolores. <laughs> and then, um, you know, there was people that were actually, um, you know, finished their trade that were obviously above me, but they weren't above me. So he he sort of leaned on me a lot more. And then, um, and then I think by the time I was the uh, end of my third year, starting fourth year, he. Um, it would have been my fourth year. He went and bought another restaurant and left Lavelle to me. So I said, Chef, you know, and, and I had all these 30-year-olds underneath me and I was 18. How, did, how was that working? I, I didn't think anything of it then. 
And I had no no inkling whatsoever. It was just this is what I did, and and this is what he wanted me to do. And and he'd come and spend Mondays with me, and then he'd leave me for the rest of the week, and and off he'd go to to do the new one. And that's probably why I left in the end because it didn't work the other one, and he came back, and I felt as though that I'd, I'd lost, you know, that mm. sort of control a little bit. He didn't want me to go. He was very upset when I. He must have trusted you implicitly. Oh, yeah. I mean, and to do that now, like when you think about that, you know, as a restaurant owner, you're looking at a 18, 19 year old, yeah, and going, would I? Yeah. No. Did you only find that there were problems? For, I mean, I'm just picturing this young kid running a kitchen. When a new guy started, was he looking at you going, what the, what the hell? Or, did it be, or was it pretty obvious that you are in was charge? Pretty, of I think it was pretty obvious. I think it was pretty obvious because I'd been there so long and I had the, I had the total trust with, with, with the head chef and the owner. Mm. Um, and we got on famously and, you know, and, and, you know, to be honest, I'd be there three, four hours before everybody or anyone else that started and I'd be there doing stuff, you know. Um, and you know, I remember, I remember it vividly. It's that there was people would start, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be an issue for me really. I, I had no, oh, look, I had a chip on my shoulder. There's no question. You know, I was, I was, I knew what I wanted to do, and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be the boss, and and you know, I sort of do whatever I had to do to get mm. to get. Well, he sounded like a tough chef, so you'd be a tough chef too. Oh yeah, he was just a tough. younger version of. Yeah. Oh yeah, things were. Bit different back in those days. I remember, but I ignore it. (laughs) I I remember, but I don't. I don't like to talk about it actually. (laughs) So successful, so young. Yep. (laughs) So if you told your younger self, oh, by the way, just so you know, in 30 years' time, you're going to be this. I mean, imagine what he would have said. Uh, Yeah, mate, no. (laughs) Would have been scared and run away. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I suppose I didn't care about anything else but cooking then, you know, and, and even when, um, when did I start? Well, I was, I was at Aria when, when I got to do my first TV gig and I only got it because I said that this is a shit show and it'll never work. And it was... What was know, it? My restaurant rules. <laughs> and I auditioned they said, oh, we, we're going we're gonna to have five guys, five couples around the country and, you know, and we're going to give them all a restaurant and then the winner's going to own the restaurant. I said, all right, so they're chefs. No, they're not. I said, well, that won't work. <laughs> a non-chef and a, a non-restaurant person can't run a restaurant. And because I arced up about it, they said, we want you. He's the guy. (laughs) He's the guy. I love making this series, and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message, because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One Australia or wherever you listen and if you're feeling like it maybe even recommend the show to a friend you never know they might find it as delicious as you do well so, so what do you think about all of this now that you're involved in it and yeah. you're involved in television and media and yep. you know whether it's magazines or delicious awards or all this mm. how do you how do you think what do you think about food now um, not not personally, maybe, yeah, or maybe yeah. both. A bit of personal, but also where it's going and and how it's changed. Uh, look, I, I found something in life that I love so much. You know, I feel as though I never have to work another day. Um, and the reason being is that it's changed my role, of course, but I still have that you know um, that real passion and that real love for food. You know, and I, I still cook. You know, of course, I'm not on the stove every night in restaurants, um, but anyone that looks at my Instagram will know that I'm I'm always you know cooking something and doing something. Um, and traveling and whatever else, and I've still got a real passion for it, and I, I still love it. Um, you know, what I tell people when they get into the industry, because it was blown out with media, as we all know, um, forget about that. 
you know, do it if you love it because if you don't, it's too bloody hard. And I remember, you know, when you and I were doing MasterChef, I think it was the first year and I mentored um, that young girl who's still a very, very good friend of mine, Jussie Schofield. Yeah. And she lives around the corner and we hang out a lot and I absolutely adore her. I think she's amazing. But I remember when she came out of of that show and she said to me, she said, Matt, how long is it going to take me to learn all this? And I remember saying to her, Jussie, I've been doing it for 25 years and I still have no fucking idea. <laughs> it, it is just an industry that can, you can keep learning, you know. And, and my, my advice to her was don't do it, you know, for fame and glory and whatever. Do it because you love it. And obviously she's got a real passion for it and she's still doing it. Um, but you see a lot of people come into it thinking, right, you know, and I even had a, someone close to me that, that followed my footsteps and saying, oh, this is what I want to do. And they didn't do it in the beginning, but they saw the money I was making, the success, but they just don't have the love. You don't have the love, it's too hard. I think it's just too hard and too long. And and I suppose I started really early owning a restaurant is because I was so young, Gaz. I, I didn't, I just thought to myself, if it fails, well, I can just go start again, you know, and give it a crack. Do you still have the same optimism now? Is that what keeps you successful? Or is it it's kind of battered and scarred a little bit? I've uh, battered and scarred. Yeah, there's no question. I'm, I'm definitely... Um, I, I wouldn't want to go backwards now. <laughs> you know, it's it's got to that point is where, you know, I think you try to, you know, you try and, you know, make it as much as you can then you try and hold on to it, I mm. suppose. And, and you know, hitting the big 5-0 this year kind of, you know, made me really think and, you know, what do I want to do, what do I want to achieve in life? And and you asked me 10 years ago, I would have said I wanted to own, you know, 50 restaurants and, and now I don't think I do. Because I think I did. Yeah. I think I actually remember saying because it, it wasn't the answer I was expecting because I think, you know, I've always seen you as being enormously successful and I remember saying, you know, along the lines of, you know, why are you doing this? And I yeah. think you said something along the lines of, don't quote me, you may, you may not even remember, but you said, I want to build an empire. I want to leave something behind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, wow, because I've always seen George in the same way. Yeah. Some of the big restaurateurs, you know, whether it's mm. Neil Perry or George mm. or, mm. you know, uh, Chris Lucas, people that are mm. that constantly just moving, rolling, and mm. you, you're one of them. I, I, I was, and I think I think priorities changed a little bit. And, and when you say that you want to leave something behind, you know, I, I still have this thing in my head that I want to leave something behind, but maybe it's not, maybe it's not, um, um, you know, a, a billion restaurants. You know, I've got a, a son who's going to Melbourne next year to do medicine and, you know, my daughter, I'm not sure what she wants to do and I don't know whether they want to follow my footsteps. And I suppose the legacy I want to try and leave now is to try and give back a little bit, you know, and, and that's the way I, I see it and, and that's, where my main focus really has been on the last sort of 12, 18 months is, is trying to help, you know, whether it's mentoring younger chefs or whether it's trying to help industry or whether it's trying to help farmers or farmers is the big thing. Yeah, me, that's obviously. a no, – let's talk about that a little bit because that's a passion yeah. of yours, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And this is this this is, goes really deep because it um, it reminds me growing up and seeing my, my family going through it, you know, the – the, the big farm and then, you know, the, the multiple farms and then and then no farms and then a little dairy farm and then no farm again and, and living in the suburbs mm. and, and struggling and, and dad making a little bit more money and then buying a tiny little farm and and then, you know, buying a bigger one, you know, separating from my mum and struggled a bit and and then that's when I came into the fold and we bought the, the one that we have now and which, you know, I've sort of bought most of them all out now really. And, um, and, I'm lucky because I've got a farm that I can destock when drought happens, but I've got income to actually put um, cows back in the paddock. So 
A lot of farmers don't. And, you know, I started learning about the statistics and what had been happening. And, you know, when we lost our dairy farm, there's 22,000 dairy farms in Australia. That was 1980, so a little bit before we were. But 1980, there's 22,000 dairy farmers or dairy farms. And now, you know, you'd think there'd be maybe more, if not, you know, the same, 5,400. The rate that we're going in 15, 20 years, we're going to be buying milk from New Zealand. You know, and I was just recently up in Cornell University as a guest from the dean up there. It's number one university in, in America for agriculture. It's an Ivy League. And um, we were talking to the, the lots of different um, um, meetings that we had up there about regen, um, biodynamics, you know, and, and it was all about the farmers and how we can sort of not re-educate farmers but try to diversify them a little bit. My father particularly is to try and, you know, get him to do different practices so we can, you know, sort of look after the, 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 the soil a bit more and the dirt a bit more and, and when it rains try to keep the rain on the property and let it, <laughs> let it rush, rushing off it. Um, so... So in a small way, dealing with your dad, sorry to interrupt you, Flo, yeah, so yeah. dealing with your dad, is that very typical of lots of farmers or is it your is. dad a bit more progressive? Like that, is he that, old that, dog, old tr- uh, new tricks kind of thing? He, he is, he is in a way, and he's, he's, a, he's a very good farmer. Um, and, you know, he, he, you know, all he wants to do is produce the best and he always has been. But the more I'm getting into this biodynamic and, and you know, regen and all this, it just makes more sense to me. So I, I'm sort of... I haven't struggled with it yet with him, but we're, we're going to be talking about how we can sort of start changing it. What, what, trying to educate what's, is there resistance out there? or I think there is with a lot of old farmers, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's, you know, look, they're, they're struggling in other ways at the moment rather than that. But, and, you know, that this is part of it and this is why we set up the foundation, you know, thankful for farmers. Um, and, you know, the money that we, we raise. So basically what we've done, we've set up this foundation so some guys that I've known for years and I, I actually helped them launch their, their foundation called Thankful and this is for farmers to try and help them. What we're doing is co-branding with, with Big Brands. Remember the old um, Heart Tick Foundation thing? Yeah. So we're going to have this logo. We've got this logo. In fact, we're all getting tattoos of it. And, um, and that logo you'll be able to see on different items like Victoria Coffee or, um, you know, San Pedro, uh, Victoria's or their waters that they have. And when you see that, you know there's a donation going to the farmers. Um, where that donation, we're trying to work out now where it goes, but we're thinking mental health, we're thinking, you know, not just flood relief, it's, it's all of it, um, re-educating them however we can do it. Um, but it's, it's taken off and we've got a lot of big corporates dying to jump on board. Um, we did a bit of a release yesterday with the government and they're all behind it. And we're hoping to raise about 200 million bucks a year. This is not one year, two years, this is forever. 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 And we're not going to hand it out to the farmers straight away. And yeah. it's not just for flood. It's about, you know, preserving Australian farmers for as long as we possibly can because yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, it's a dying race, yeah. you know. Well, it, even last, last night, and I suppose when this podcast goes out, it won't be. So even recently there was a young lady on Q&A, a young farmer, 21 years old. It's all about water rights. You know, there's no water. So half of Australia, well, parts of Australia are flooded. Mm. Other parts are in the worst drought that you could possibly imagine. And this struggle over accessing water, big, uh, big cities, towns, businesses, accessing the water before they even mm. get to the farms. Yeah. And, so there, and, there must and, be so many problems. Oh, there, there are, and and that, and that's where we've got to we've got to start from the bottom, you know. And it was quite funny, I say, because I was with some government officials, and they said, you know, I was talking about this guy getting, 
in Pennsylvania, a dairy farmer, and he was saying that, you know, it's tough up there. He's getting $4 American a litre for his milk. And he goes, what are your farmers getting? I said, mate, we sell it for a dollar. And, uh, you know, I said, the average litre of milk is 47 cents. And he's like, are you for real? And then uh, one of the government guys said, you know, you, well, you know, do we blame the two? And I said, well, well, yeah, maybe, but we also got to blame the government for letting it happen. You could see his face go, what? Because <laughs> I, was, I was talking directly to him, which is it's the truth. The reality. You know, it's a reality that, that um, we've, got to, we've got to look after our farmers. We've got to respect them more. And everywhere else in the world respects their farmers a lot more than what we do. And there's a disconnect from the city to the, to the land on both sides. They both really don't kind of understand each other. And I think in Australia we've been very, very lucky. We've had cheap food for a long time. You know, and you only have to look at lamb prices that have doubled in the last three years and everyone's gone, how expensive lamb is. Yes, it is a lot more compared to what it used to be. But you go to New York or anywhere else in the world, it's double again. You know, so it's, you know, yeah. Anthony Paharich was saying the other day that, you know, 50 years ago. He's a very well-known butcher if, yeah, yeah, if you we don't, don't know. No, yeah. From Vicks Churchill. He was saying in stats that, you know, the world, most of the world spent 30% on their, on their groceries, you know, of their income. And the rest of the world still do that, and we're down to like 10%. Yeah, and less in some cases. Yeah, and, um, you know, I think we've just got to – the reality is buying milk for a dollar is not helping anybody. You know, who was saying, Valerie, from, um, you know, this, the smelly shop the other day, the, you know, the, the cheese shop in Adelaide, she was saying that they did some studies on just our sort of run-of-the-day milk it's as buddy as good as the the milk anywhere in Europe. In in you know they make all those beautiful French cheeses. You know we've got the quality is there, and it just should be. We've just got to look after them a little bit more because you know farmers are really proud. They don't really ask for much help, and if they do, they're on their knees, and they are on their knees. Forty percent more chance of killing yourself if you're a farmer. You know, to someone in the city, that that, that statistic is horrible, and that's that's through financial pressure. That's not counting. The amount of guys that actually run themselves into trees. Yeah. Because there are a lot of that too, you know? So if people are listening and they want to do something, where do they go to, Look, the, to you can find go, out about you it? You can go to uh, our website, thankful, um, thankfulforfarmers.org, and, um, and just, you know, look, at the moment we're getting big companies on board. We want more and more companies to come on board, you know, whether they're food companies or they're not. You know, we've got some other PwC are a massive supporter of ours. And, um, you know, we're just going, we're getting more and more and more. And even if they just want to get on, get awareness out of the, out there, you know, and just and just make people aware that our farmers are, are in desperate need, and um, and we need to help them because, you know, let's face it, if if I didn't have a farmer, there's a good good little story here. You need a doctor, right? Once or twice a year. You need a lawyer, you know, once or twice a year, unless you've you know been bad. You need a farmer three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm. You know, and, and they need our help and they need our support right now. And, and what people don't realise, it's not just the farmers, the communities out there, the towns out there, because the farmers stop spending money in the towns and the towns have been decimated. So the, the thing that we started yesterday was, was go out in New South Wales um, to your country town and buy your Christmas presents, you know, from an antique store or a craft store or whatever, talk to your butcher out there and get your hams. You're actually helping that community, and that to me is, I think, that's a great little initiative. And if yeah. you can get little things like that out there, it makes a big difference. It's funny you should say that because I, you're a bike rider, right? I'm yep. a bike rider, yeah. And I often just go out into the hills and I deliberately stop and buy stuff that yep. I don't need. Yep. yep. You know, I eat a bad pastry, drink a bad coffee, fill my tank up with full of petrol, buy something. Yeah. And often Mandy will say, "Why do you do that?" And I said, "Because they just, yeah. 
They just need people to stop and buy stuff. They do. Yeah. They do. And, and, and they're counting on it. Yeah. And, and Victoria does a lot better than us with the, with the little country towns and the restaurants and whatever else. And, and we need to sort of, we need to get better, but we need to support them more. Mm. We need to go for those little drives. We need, we need to get people out of the city because it's so bloody nice out there. Might be a bit dry in spots, but get out there and, and go to the local cafe and have some bloody, um, you know, scones and jam in the morning or whatever. You're actually helping them a lot more than what you mm. think. Great initiatives. People are doing it tough. Have you had uh, tough periods in your life personally, like in your family? You've, you've got some struggles going on that people don't see, you don't talk about? You don't have to talk about it. Uh, look, I, I'm a pretty strong sort of guy and I'm the guy there that, you know, sort of generally helps me. I, I've had the odd time, yeah, you know, and a couple of years ago it was pretty tough when, you know, Pete wanted to, to leave and it was like, you know, losing a partner. Not He's not dead. He's retired. He's having a great bloody time. <laughs> I love him for it. But, you know, that, that was around that time was really tough. You know, it was like someone I'd sort of grown up with, had done business together and, and spoke to him all the time about business. And that was a pretty tough time, you know. And I think he went through it too because, mm. you know, all of a sudden having an empire and, and selling out and lying on a beach. <laughs> but I think it was tough, you know, mm. all, all, all the same. for both. Be laugh about it. How did, how did that feel? Oh, it was, it was pretty bad. You know, it was um, it was pretty bad. And, you know, you sort of you sort of keep it to yourself too, I think. And I probably haven't now. I've just spilled the beans. <laughs> very good, Gary. You're very good. <laughs> no, but I'm good now. I'm all right now, you know. What I used to do, I used to, I, I'm probably like you, I used to get on a motorbike and go for a spin, you know, clear my head. Um, and I've got, you know, I'm, I'm a very private person, as you know, in my family. And, um, but, you know, I've got a, a, a lot of support there. And, uh, you know, we're all very, very close and, you know, we, we hang out a bit and mm. and we're hanging out a lot more, which is good. And uh, so your dad, do it because obviously he's had a turbulent time. Yeah, and- I go, well, Dad, we nearly lost him a couple of years ago and he sort of fought back and came back and, and snapped out. And that was all around that same time, so it was all all a bit tough. Mm. And uh, we really thought that he was going to go, but he sort of, I don't know what happened to him. He bloody came back and, you know. Farmer. Farmer, you know, tough as bloody nails. Um, and, you know, I, I head down to the farm a, a, a lot more than I used to. I'm, I'm renovating the house soon and doing some other bits and pieces and, and that's where I, I really love to get away because mm. it's just that mental off for me and it's hard to turn that brain off sometimes. And, you know, I used to tell people all the time that I don't have phone reception out there, you know, for years and years and years. I did it for the first, you know, 10 years, but now I do my Still pretend I don't have it. Need to drill holes and fix things. <laughs> yeah, but you're answering emails. Yeah, Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi. <laughs> so, so on to brighter. You know what's happening in the future with you? What's next? Um, look, you know, I, I, I'm not 100 percent sure where it's going right now. You know, I, I've sort of in consolidation mode. Um, you know, there's a couple of uh, couple of bits in TV stuff that I'm sort of developing. You know, I'm a bit like you guys. I want to I want to actually own the content. Um, and, you know, like I did with Paddock to Plate, which, you know, I, I loved. Bake Off, I'm sure that'll sort of keep ticking on. Um, I've been talking to people overseas and sort of hanging out and doing bits and pieces. Mm. But, you know, my, my main thing has always been the restaurants and, and that's what I want to, you know, sort of keep focusing on. Um, I've really, truly got nothing in the pipeline right now. Um, there's no buildings that I've bought. That's great because even thinking about how many things you've got currently <laughs> in the pipeline gives me palpitations. Just but saying. you know what, I, I, I will. Uh, I will. There's no question. I'd, I'd like to – there's a couple of ideas that I've got that I'd love to do, um, but it's just finding the right time, the right place, and, uh, and you know, find the right building and then I'll, I'll go along and do it. But at the moment I'm, I'm quite content. Um, you know, I might have a holiday at Christmas time and, and chill out um, my son's talking about moving to Melbourne. I want to spend as much time as I possibly can with him. You know, he's worked so bloody hard these last couple of years doing his HSC. And, um, yeah, I want to hang out and, 
you know, see what he wants to do over Christmas. And and um, and then I might be spending a lot of time in Melbourne, Gary, and well, I, might, I might be calling you to make sure that he's fed. No problem. You know, when I look at your Instagram and I see all those lovely little home-cooked meals, the yeah, smoke yeah, yeah, and the yeah, chops, all yeah, the rest, you can yeah. come round to my place. <laughs> Barbecue's always on, mate. I, I actually have uh, loved the chat, and, and more than that, I love the fact that my idea of your legacy or your empire building is just shifting a little bit. And that, yeah. that certainly when it's such a uh, worthwhile cause, mm, mm. it's just, I think, is a, is a yeah. wonderful thing to do. And I think, you know, when we're old chefs one day mm, yeah, and you yeah. look back and you go, that's what I did. Yeah. That's a really beautiful thing yeah, to, yeah. to leave behind. So well done. That's Cheers, buddy. Mate, lovely talking to you. Great seeing you. So my tips and tricks all around Matt Moran. Now, I couldn't not think about lamb because if you didn't know this, he's also famous for Moran's family farm lamb, which is absolutely delicious. But when I think lamb right now, I love the idea of the barbecue. And a little recipe that I use quite a lot at home is just a simple pistachio ducca. And this can be used as a a marinade. It can be sprinkled over the top. It can be dipped in it. So things like lamb cutlets can be grilled on the barbecue and dipped in the dukkha, or you can butterfly a lamb leg or a shoulder, chuck it on the barbecue, and then brush it with the dukkha. You just add a little bit of olive oil. It's delicious. And a very simple recipe is about a cup of pistachios, or you can use almonds or hazelnuts or all three, if you fancy. I use about a third a cup of whole coriander seeds, three to four tablespoons of cumin seeds, a teaspoon of sea salt, two teaspoons of sumac, and about a quarter cup of toasted sesame seeds. And essentially, you pound in a mortar and pestle or you blend into a coarse spice mix. It's absolutely delicious, very fragrant. And like I say, what you can do is keep that dry. You can store it in a sealed container for a couple of weeks, or you can add a bit of olive oil and then brush it on, say, that roast lamb or some roasted vegetables. It's a great little spice mix. You can store it in the cupboard in a sealed container for a couple of weeks. It'll keep it fresh. Or if you want to, you can douse it in a good olive oil and brush it on all sorts of things. So think salads and roast lamb, even fish. It's absolutely delicious if not a little addictive, trust me. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Swalensky with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.